The scripture reading this morning is from John 4, verses 25 to 42. Please open your Bibles with me to John 4, 25 to 42. And if you don't have your Bible, uh, I invite you to use a pew Bible. The verses are found on page 74 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they were marveling that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, come, See a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Even now, he who reaps is receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that have remained unchanged from the dawn of time and that will echo down for all eternity. I thank you, Lord, that there is no change or shadow due to, uh, shifting shadow due to change in you. Uh, you are light, Lord, and the giver of every good and perfect gift. You truly are holy. You are a holy, loving, gracious, compassionate, and righteous God. Lord, and we come before you with heads bowed and with hearts humbled, pleading that you would come and be with us this morning. Lord, be, be with us as we have just sung these songs of praise to you. And I pray, Father, that you would Forgive us for any pettiness that kept us from singing those songs with full hearts of praise to your name. Lord, we have come into the presence of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
How dare any of us stand with arms folded and with hearts flat in your presence. Lord, forgive us. We can become so consumed by the things of this world that we forget what we're actually doing, what we're actually called to do. So Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would help us offer up hearts of worship to you this morning. In the time of our worship service that's left, Lord, let it be redeemed and renewed and, and full of your grace and the Holy Spirit and the truth of Christ so that the hearts of your people would sing to the glory of your name and that the hearts of those who are unconverted in this room would be brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the God of miracles, Lord. You have worked miracles in our own lives and bringing us to faith in your Son. So God, I pray that even this morning, someone who has not known you in Christ, I pray that you would awaken them to faith. I pray that you would uh, root out the devil, that you would remove demonic influence and distractions from this room, that you would banish lethargy and slothfulness, Lord, that you would fill us with zeal and with the holy passion to praise you, because that's why you've saved us, Lord. That's what eternity is for. It's that we would praise and worship you as the God who is worthy of that praise. God, give us a taste of glory now, we pray. Help us come before you with right hearts and with pure minds together as one body this morning. Lord, what else is needed? What more is needed in this world than for you to move and work through the word of the gospel? To continue building the kingdom of your Son, and magnifying the Lord Jesus among us. I pray, Father, that you would do that great work among us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, man, how are you guys doing? Really? Take that mask off. It's okay to say, yeah, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well today. <laughs> Physically, my back's been killing me all week. And I was up at 3 o'clock this morning with horrendous pain. Looked in the mirror, and my hips are off. So my, my left hip is, uh, let's see, my left hip is down, and my right hip's up. Like, what makes that happen? Uh, I don't know. But we soldier on, right? The Lord's good through it all. We can, uh, we can lay aside these distractions. We can glorify Christ and know that one day we're going to get redeemed bodies and uh, never have back problems again or cancer issues or death or doubts or fears or any other kinds of things that we struggle with. Let's begin by remembering this morning what we're looking at, what we're seeing in this section of the Gospel of John. Um, from John chapter 2 to John chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, we're in a segment of the Gospel of John um, that is really drawing our attention specifically to the glory of Christ's purpose. Right? So what was the, the purpose for Christ coming into this world? For, for what purpose did the Father send him? Uh, that's what we're focusing on in these chapters. Chapters 5 to 12 is going to focus more on the glory of Christ's person. And we're going to get to that soon enough. But today we're, we're in this section where we're looking at the glory of Christ's purpose. And we're coming to the end of this section. So really, there's this building effect. There's this culmination 
that we're reaching at the end of John chapter 4 that's really focusing in and homing in on the essence of the purpose of Christ, the essence for which he sent, the Father sent the Son. And so it seems to me that during these, these, these uh, two chapters, John has been seeking to show his readers two things, uh, to show us two things about Christ. Number one, he's been seeking to show to us that Jesus came as God in the flesh in order to fulfill the promises of God revealed through the prophets. So that all the promises that God has made in the prophets of the Old Testament are now being fulfilled and brought to their consummate end in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, John is laboring to show us that the manner in which those promises are being fulfilled are different than what most people expected. So we've seen this in different ways already, right? In John chapter 2, Jesus focused on the reality of the new temple he's bringing in. And what's that, what's that the fulfillment of? That's the fulfillment of the temple described at the end of Ezekiel, right? It's this glorious, massive temple that the Lord promises he's going to build and he's going to establish in the days of the new covenant. In John chapter 2, Jesus looks at the people and says, I'm here to build that, that temple for you right now. I'm here to fulfill Ezekiel. We've seen the new birth in John chapter 3. And what is that the fulfillment of? Is that not the fulfillment of the promises of God in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36, where the Lord swears that in the new covenant, all of his people will know him in spirit and in truth. He will give them a new spirit and he will put a new heart in them and they will worship him as the God of their redemption. We've seen uh, at the end of John chapter 3, Jesus is here grabbing for himself, taking for himself the new covenant bride, right? That's John the Baptist. He's nothing but the bridegroom or uh, the, the friend of the bridegroom. And he's here standing and waiting for the bridegroom to come. And now that that bridegroom has come, now that John the Baptist hears his voice, it's time for John to decrease and it's time for Christ to increase, right? And then we've seen also this new worship that Christ came to introduce to us, this fulfillment of true worship that was so well described throughout the book of Isaiah. So Jesus, John is presenting Jesus as the one who fulfills the entire Old Testament. And in our passage this morning, he continues to add to our perspective of what the Messiah came to do in the world by zeroing in on the heart of the Messiah's purpose. That's the first point that we're looking at this morning, the Messiah's purpose. Yeah, the purpose of the Messiah. Jesus describes it generally in verse 34, where he says, My purpose for coming into this world is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's kind of sad that my kids aren't here this morning because this is probably the one verse in the Gospel of John that they remember the most. And uh, Joel, you're back there, right? Where are you? Yeah, how did we memorize that verse? You remember? It's okay, go ahead. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's cute. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. You say it with me. I'll say it with you. You say it with me. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, do, do. Yeah. Right? It's like my kid's favorite verse to memorize. Every time we go to memorize a new verse in John, they go back to that one. And that's the one we start off with. Well, that's what Jesus is, in this verse, he's telling us specifically the essence 
of his purpose in coming to this world. What was his purpose? It was to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish the work that the one who sent him called him to do. And so he specified what that means in verse 36 of John chapter 4. Where clearly what we find is that the father's will and his work is for the son to come into this world as the reaper. Jesus comes as the reaper. And we often think of the reaper in terms of death. But that's not what Jesus is emphasizing here. He's come as the reaper. The one who comes to receive his wages and to gather in fruit for life eternal. Very similar to what John the Baptist had said in Matthew chapter 3 verse 12. He said the Messiah is coming to gather wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's at the heart of what Jesus' purpose is for coming into this world. It was to gather his wheat. It was to gather in his chosen people and bring them to the glory of eternal salvation. That's what, that's what the Father willed for the Son to do. And Jesus says, that's my food. That's what I'm devoted to. That's what all my attention is directed to, gathering in the fruit and receiving my wages. Receiving what he, was, uh, uh, what he had earned. We've already seen that in John 3.16, right? Where uh, God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There's this reality that the father has sent his son into the world in order to give sinners eternal life. And that's really the essence of the purpose for which Jesus came. And yes, that includes the Jewish people. We've seen that with Nicodemus already. And at the end of John chapter 2, when Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem, we've seen that it includes the Jewish people. But it also includes the Samaritans, doesn't it? We're seeing in this chapter right now. It's, we're going to see next week or the week after that it also includes the Gentiles. Right? Where ultimately Jesus is fulfilling his commission by gathering together a redeemed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Redeemed by his blood and saved for the glory of his Father. And so Christ began to do this work in his earthly ministry. But it's really important to keep in mind that he is continuing to accomplish that work today. Uh, if you notice your meditation verse in the bulletin, we have a meditation verse in there weekly. And what that's for, those of you who haven't been here long enough to know, maybe we haven't mentioned it in a while, that meditation verse is there for you so that whenever you come into the, the corporate gathering, maybe you would get here by, by 10, 10, 10, 15, and you would sit down and meditate on that verse and pray and prepare your heart to worship God. That's, that's what that verse is there for. But if you pay attention to those verses, it's Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 16. And uh, man, I don't have mine up here. Let me turn there. Just listen to what it says here. It says, uh, John the Baptist, or excuse me, John the Apostle speaking. He says, then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who's that talking about? Who do you think that's talking about? There's like 50 different interpretations, right? I don't know. Who is it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Let me just clarify that. This is talking about Jesus. One like a son of man 
having a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. It says in verse 15, And another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying out with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, saying, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then what does that one do who's seated on that cloud? He then swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Did you know that? That's, that's what Jesus is doing at this moment in history. He is swinging his sickle, the sickle of his gospel. It's moving forth across the face of the earth, and it is reaping souls as a harvest for the glory of Jesus. So whenever we're talking about sinners being saved, when people are brought to faith in Christ, when a church is planted, regardless of where it is in the world, that is the result of the work of Jesus the Messiah. He's reaping souls for His glory and He's bringing them in for life eternal. That's how people are saved. Jesus brings that sickle to bear upon their lives and brings them into the kingdom. Now that's, that work is going to be consummated one day. That's going to be brought to its full completion and glory. And I can't wait for that day. I know you can't either. The longer you live in this world, the more you suffer, the more you struggle, the more you deal with in, in, in living life in this fallen world, the more anticipation we have for the world that's to come. Right, so we're going to see the fullness of the glory of what Christ has done. But it's important to remember that Jesus is even now continuing to gather fruit for eternal life from among the nations. And the book of Acts shows us how he does that. This, this suffering Savior, this resurrected Savior, this ascended Savior who is now seated on the throne in glory has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and he has poured out the Spirit upon his church. And so now Jesus wields his sickle. He wields by the power of his resurrection and the Holy Spirit the, the Word of God through the ministry of the Spirit and through the church in this world reaping souls for his glory. And it's encouraging to remember, brothers and sisters, that you and I are a part of that. That if we are saved here today, it's because Christ has wielded his sickle. He has gathered us into his fold by the power of his word, and we are his fruit. That's so encouraging. We're his fruit. Believer, you, you are his wages, according to John 4.36. That means you're, you're the reward that the Father is giving to His Son for the work His Son has accomplished. That's, yeah, amen. Thank you, Idrin. Amen. Now, that's amazing. And, and it's an awesome reality and privilege that we get to enjoy. But that work of gathering fruit from among the nations outside of Israel began right here in John chapter 4 when Jesus gathers in this Samaritan woman. And that's our second point, Jesus gathering in the Samaritan woman. Look with me briefly at verses 25 and 26, John 4. The woman said to Jesus, said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the, uh, the woman's response to how Jesus had answered her question about worship. And clearly, she didn't like the answer that Jesus had given her. Because, once again, she is 
trying to deflect. She's trying to distract and divert the conversation. Basically, what she's doing is she's doing what we all do when we're in a discussion that, reach a, that reaches a wall with somebody, where we reach this point where we can't go beyond and we're, we're in disagreement. What do we do at that point? Well, she's doing what we all do at that moment. She kind of is throwing up her hands and saying, well, that's your opinion. You've got your opinion. I've got my opinion. And someday when the Messiah comes, we're going to know what's true. And you know what she's thinking in her heart. The same thing that you often think in your heart. And then you are going to see how wrong you are and how right I am, right? That's what's going on with this woman. She's like, well, listen, you talk about worshiping on this mountain, that mountain. That's what the Jews say we need to worship there. My people say we need to worship here. And here you are saying that it doesn't matter whether that's there or here. The hour's coming when we're going to worship in a new way. Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait and find out when the Messiah comes. So very clearly, up to this point, this woman still doesn't get it, right? She still doesn't see Jesus. She still doesn't understand the reality of Christ. It had not yet penetrated her heart. But then comes the watershed moment in verse 26. When Jesus pierces her stony heart with seven words, five words in Greek, he says, I who speak to you am he. Yet literally in the Greek, it says, I am the one who is speaking to you. The I am is like its own statement, right? I am the one who is speaking to you. Now, from that point on, something shifts in this woman's heart, doesn't it? Before that, she's still in her obstinate rebellion against God. She's still not recognizing the Messiah. But then after that, we see that there's this unique power that began operating in her soul after Jesus spoke those words. We know that because of the way she responds. Look at verses 28 and 29. It says that when the disciples came back, the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? Now look at that radical change that had taken place. Look at the radical change that's on display right there. There was something in Jesus' words that caused this woman to rush into the very city she was trying to stay away from. And she came into that city to speak to the very people she was trying to avoid about the very sin of her life that she was trying to hide. You see that? In an instant, this woman's pride was broken. And her urge towards self-preservation was wiped off the table. She's obviously been set free from the bondage of her guilt and shame because she's going around freely talking about it. So different. This woman was manifestly different after that encounter, that statement from Jesus. So different, in fact, that verse 30 tells us that the people of the city felt compelled to come see for themselves this man who had made such an impact on this woman. They knew who she was. They knew she tried to avoid them. And yet here she is, open, honest, bearing her soul before them, talking about this guy who told her all that she had done. What happened? What happened to that woman? What was it in Jesus' words that, 
that made such a radical impact on her. You know, Jesus is, is actually going to say these same I am words to other people throughout the Gospel of John. And those times are not going to have the same effect that this had on this woman. So, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 6, Jesus speaks to these soldiers who are coming to arrest him, and he speaks with such power and force whenever he says, I am, that it causes these soldiers physically to back up and to bow their knee before him. What a picture of what's going to happen in the day of judgment. There will be no rebels standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. They will bow the knee to him, and they will confess him as Lord. So here we have this picture of this powerful word coming upon these soldiers. But even that power was not enough to change their hearts. He spoke, I am who you're seeking. They bow down before him, but they still move forward to arrest him, don't they? John 8, 58, Jesus uttered these same words of I am with even greater clarity to the Pharisees. Before Abraham was, I am. No question in in anyone's mind what he meant by that. And all that did was fuel the rage and the desire of these Pharisees to stone him. But that's not what happened with this woman when when he spoke those words to her. These words had a different effect. They softened her. They broke through the veil of her darkness and her religiosity that was covering over her heart. And they broke through in a moment. And brought radical change in a moment. What made that difference? Well, simply this. That when Jesus spoke these words in John 4.26, the wind of the Spirit blew with them upon this woman's heart. And she was born again. The Holy Spirit enabled her to see the truth about who Jesus truly is and what he said. Or as Jonathan Edwards would put it, the Spirit of God produced within her a real sense and a true conviction of the reality of what Jesus had said. And in that moment, she was born again and was gathered into the Father's barn as fruit for eternal life. Beloved, this has to happen to all of us if any of us would be saved. This this has to happen to us if we are going to be saved. The sickle of truth has to reap our own souls for eternal life or else we have not yet been gathered into Christ's barn. Whether we recognize that voice in the moment that it speaks or whether we come to recognize that voice over a longer period of time, still, nonetheless, the voice of the eternal ages must take the light of His Word and break through the darkness of our hearts if we're going to be made new in Him. Christ has to bring His Word to bear by the power of the Spirit and minister it to our hearts in such a way that we ourselves have a radically altered view and perception of reality. So that we see Christ as ultimately real and not the facade that's around us in this world. Where all of a sudden the words of Jesus on the page leap off the page and plant themselves into our hearts. If you can say that that has happened to me, then beloved, you need to rejoice because Christ the reaper has come and he's gathered you in for his glory. 
If you say, when you bow before the Word of God and you feel the Spirit of God ministering to your heart with that Word and shaving off those rough edges and, and conforming you to the image of Christ and you know that Christ truly is ministering to your soul by His Spirit, then you need to be glad and you need to rejoice in the salvation that Jesus has brought to you. But oh, how many there are who claim to believe in Jesus. And who regularly attend churches who have not yet truly been reaped by the gospel. Or even worse, how many there are who haven't even been pressed by a pastor to consider whether or not they have been reaped. Right? Listen, I know, I know that I press this on you a lot. And it's going to happen more and more as we walk through the gospel. But I do this because I love you, and I hope you understand that. I definitely don't want to be the cause to make any one of you doubt in Christ's willingness or in His power to save you. But at the same time, I don't want to be guilty of letting anyone in this room be deceived about the real state of their soul. Because I'm going to have to give an account on the day of judgment for what I've spoken to you. How I've ministered to you with God's Word. And if I have not spoken the truth to you, even when it hurts, even when it cuts, then I'm going to be held accountable for that. I love you more than that. I don't want you to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day to only then to find out that your profession of faith in Jesus was a sham. What does your life show about the work of Christ in you? I know I'm not an easy guy to listen to. <laughs> I get that. But oh, please, please don't mistake my roughness and my, my, my confrontational tone. Please don't mistake that for a lack of love. I love you, and I want to see you. I want to see you gathered into Christ. I want to see you gathered more and more closely to Him as time goes on. What I'm seeking, what I'm seeking in you, I just want to be, I just want to be real, I want to be open, I want to be flat out honest with every single one of you. I am seeking your soul for the glory of Christ. I'm seeking to press you with Christ's words so that you are not comfortable where you are, but you are compelled to move forward for the glory of Christ. Listen, some of you are living in sin, outright rebellion against Christ. Should you feel comfortable with where you are? Or should you realize what the Holy Spirit says in Galatians 5, that those who are drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Those who are immoral, those who are impure, those who are guilty of outburst of anger, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Don't write yourself out of that category by saying to yourself, well, I've been justified. If these things are manifesting in your life and are a practice, you need to question whether or not you've truly come to know Christ. Because when you are reaped, when you are gathered in by Christ, He doesn't just gather your soul for His glory. He takes you out of the darkness where He found you. I press this. I, I, I press you with these realities so that you, to, in order to urge you toward a closer and more careful walk with Christ, 
so that the assurance that you have of belonging to Jesus and being a true believer and, and the hope that you have that one day you're going to go to glory to be with God, so that that assurance is not a false assurance, but one that is genuine and one that is real and one that flows out of truly recognizing that you belong to Jesus Christ. Oh man, those of you who know the, the, what I'm talking about, you know the glory and the joy and the power of realizing that you truly have been saved by Jesus. You, you know the assurance and the confidence that the Lord gives to your soul by His Spirit and through His Word. When you come to recognize the real work that Jesus has done in you, there's nothing that compares to it. There, there, is no, there is no argument that can bolster your faith the way that that does. There, there's, no, there, there, there's, no, there's, no, there's no one that can stand with you to strengthen your hands and your feet and cause you to stand in the midst of persecution like knowing that you belong to Jesus. My friend, the more that you examine the work of Christ in your own life, and the more evidence you see of having been reaped by his mighty sickle, the more boldly you will be able to stand in the truth. And come hell or high water, you will have the power to stand as one of the glorious ones. And you will have the grace to shine as a light of Christ brightly in this crooked and perverse generation. That's, that's what I want for you. That's what Jesus wanted for this woman. That's what Jesus accomplished in this woman. And uh, as we begin to come to a close, <laughs> this has gone by fast. This woman had, had experienced that in-gathering of Christ. Christ had gathered her soul for life eternal, and the truth of that fact was manifested in her life. Now, we're going to develop this more next week, but... Let me just, just in preparation for next week, what, what does the fruit of your life and your walk with God, what does that say about your relationship with Christ? What would others say as they look in on your life? What, what would others say about your relationship and your walk with Christ? Because this woman came into the city saying, you guys got to come, you got to come meet this guy. He told me everything I ever did. you got to come see him. And it wasn't just her words that caused them to believe. It was the combination of her words with the fact that her life had just changed right before them. I wonder, does your testimony cause people to say, man, who is this? Who met you and made you what you are? <laughs> I remember uh, an atheist friend of mine um, at the post office one day, this was after about two years of working with him, he, uh, he and I had bantered back and forth. He had tried to give me every kind of argument to, to prove that there is no God. You know what was funny about that is that every single one of his arguments were moral arguments. In other words, they were problems that he had with the way the world is. And he used that problem to say that there is no God. And I just turned it around on him and I said, well, if there is no God, then that shouldn't bother you at all. None of those things should matter. 
There is no rhyme. There is no reason. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. So it doesn't matter who gets raped. It doesn't matter who gets murdered. It doesn't matter who dies of a drug overdose. It doesn't matter what hurricane wipes out what city and what tornado sweeps through a town. None of that matters if there is no God, right? So after about two years of that kind of interaction with him, he came up to me one morning as I was casing mail, and he did it very quietly. He did not want anyone else to hear him ask me this question. He came up behind me and said, Seth, Seth, i gotta, I got to ask you a question. <laughs> I turned around and said, yeah, what's up, man? What's going on? He goes, i got to know. I don't understand. Why are you a Christian? I don't get it. I mean, I see your life. You're obviously different. Something's going on that I don't know. What, what made you a Christian? Is it just the way you were raised? And I got to share my testimony with him, right? Just because of the, because of the witness of my life. And I'm not holding me up as an example here. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I got it all figured out or anything like that. I'm simply saying, what does the character and the flavor of your life how does that impact people around you? Because that will help you gauge uh, the real state of your soul. Anyway. Next week we're going to see more about how Jesus uses this one woman to gather in many of these Samaritans for eternal life. But, but as we close this morning, the one thing I want us to notice, uh, one other thing I want us to notice today, is Jesus' delight in gathering this woman. I want to notice that Jesus was pleased and delighted and had joy in gathering this woman for eternal life. We see this in the interaction that Jesus and his disciples have together when the disciples return from, from Sychar. You remember in uh, John 4, verse 6, it says that Jesus was physically exhausted. He was wearied from his journey, and so he sat down at the well to rest. And then verse 8 of chapter 4 tells us that the disciples went into the city to buy food. Right? And the connection there is that Jesus was so wearied by, by the journey that he sent his disciples into the city to buy food. Well, when they had returned, Jesus all of a sudden isn't hungry anymore. Verse 31, they begin urging him to eat something, but then he says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I, I'm being satisfied by something that you have, no, you have no clue what it is. Now verse 33, again they were confused and they started asking one another, well who brought him something to eat? Is it, you see this very often with the disciples. When Jesus said, I warn you, beware of the, the, Pharisee, or the, the leaven of the Pharisees, they start talking to one another about who has the bread. Well, who brought, who brought the bread on the boat? Jesus is talking about leaven. Who brought the bread? And Jesus says, are you so hard-hearted? Are you so faithless that you don't understand what I'm talking about yet? Don't you remember? I, I, I turned five loaves into, into, into enough bread to feed 5,000 people. Do you think I'm worried about whether or not you've got physical bread? That's not what I'm talking about. Obviously, Jesus is operating on a level that these disciples have not reached yet, right? Because they didn't understand what he was talking about. Now, verse 34, Jesus responds to these disciples basically by saying, I'm not talking about physical food. I am satisfied with something else. What is sustaining me and what is giving me strength is not physical food, but it is doing the will of him who sent me and finishing his work. That is what has satisfied me. That is what's giving me strength. That is what has nourished my soul. 
And what was that work? What was that food that was so satisfying to him? What, what was the food of, uh, what was the food that he had found? It was the food of seeking and saving that which was lost. It was the food of receiving wages, that is, receiving his reward from among sinners, redeeming them for the glory of the Father and gathering in fruit for the glory of life eternal. See, what Jesus had just done with this woman, she, she was his reward and she was the fruit of his harvest. And that so satisfied Jesus that his physical appetite had simply faded into the background. Now, as we close, I want to focus on on something right there. No matter your ethnicity, no matter your cultural background or whatever sinful behaviors you were trapped in before, Jesus gets more satisfaction in saving sinners like you than he does in anything else. Do you believe that? You know, here in John chapter 4, the satisfaction of Jesus in saving sinners is contrasted with the satisfaction he would receive from food. And let's, let's be real with ourselves. Come on now. I know some of you people get pretty hangry when you're hungry. Right? And my dear wife, if she were... Sitting here this morning, I'd ask her to testify to how hangry me and the girls can get uh, often. Now, you know how hangry you can get. You get hungry, and then you start to get irritable with people, and, and you lose focus on what's really important. And the only thing that matters to you is where you're going to get your next meal. And just let me eat, and then I can deal with you, Right? You know what's amazing? Like, what do we see about the glory of Jesus' priorities here? Here, Jesus is weary. Jesus is tired. He's hungry. And by the way, he's still thirsty because that woman never gave him a drink of water. <laughs> right? And yet, we find him content and satisfied with the joy of seeing his Father glorified and saving sinners. But don't miss the glory of this truth either, that at this moment, all of that joy in Jesus' heart, all that satisfaction is focused on one sinner. One woman who has been gathered in for eternal life. This is merely a glimpse of how much joy Jesus gets from denying himself for our spiritual good. Right? I mean, Hebrews 12, 2, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't go to the cross begrudgingly. He went to the cross with joy, knowing what that was going to accomplish for the salvation of his people. Galatians 2, 20, it was, it was his love that motivated Jesus to give himself up for us. It was his love that caused him to lay his life down for you. And he didn't do it begrudgingly. He did it with joy. 2 Corinthians 8-9, Jesus gave up his own riches. He became poor for our sake so that we, by his poverty, would become rich. 
rich in our relationship with God. See, this is the glory of our God, beloved. This is, this is Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 19. That, that our God will not retain His anger with His people. He will have compassion on all who come to Him. He will subdue our iniquities. He will joyfully cast our sins into the, the bottom of the sea because He delights in unchanging love. He delights to show steadfast love. He delights in loving kindness. You don't believe that about God enough. You don't believe that God truly does delight in showing love to you. That He rejoices over you in His love. He's quieted in His own spirit by His love. That's Zephaniah chapter 3. Some of you don't rest in that truth. You don't rest in that reality. You don't believe that God loves you. The reality of, of that word, that promise of Micah 7:18, is what the Father has put on display for all of us to see in His Son. And not only for us to see, but for us to own by faith the love of God. See, what satisfies Jesus more than His own personal needs is seeing you gathered in as fruit for eternal life. You are His wages. You are the reward of his suffering. And, I'm, and my friend, you need to take heart in something else that we see here in relation to this woman. Jesus has that kind of joy in saving a sinner no matter who you are. I mean, just look at the woman that he is so happy to save and bring into the, the realm of eternal glory here. A five-time divorced woman, sexually immoral a religious bigot. Here Jesus is rejoicing over the fact that He has gathered her in for salvation. We're going to see next week that not only her, but He's also satisfied with a whole host of prideful, arrogant Samaritan, uh, Samaritan half-breeds. These are the despised people of the Jews, but Jesus didn't despise them. He took pleasure in saving them. And you got to see this, guys. Jesus is just as satisfied to save you as he is to save this woman. So the very joy that Jesus has in saving this woman, the very satisfaction that he has in seeing her gathered into the kingdom is the same joy that he has for saving you. You believe that? Now, some here may think, they may hear that and think to themselves, well, of course Jesus is happy to save me. I'm a great person. Who wouldn't want to save me? Well, that's just a person who has not yet tasted how ugly and sinful and hell-deserving he or she really is. But some of you in this room, beloved, you have a really hard time believing that Jesus truly wants to save you. That it satisfies him to work the fullness of salvation in you. But here you've got to hear Jesus. You've got to hear Jesus saying to you, My friend, that's my food. That's what I live on. That's what I'm here to accomplish. That's what I want to do. I'm here to save you. I want to save you. I take pleasure in saving you. I'm satisfied in saving you. This is why Jesus can say in John 6, no one who comes to me will ever be cast out. 
Because anyone who comes to him, he takes great joy and pleasure in bringing them into the fold, receiving them for the glory of his Father. You know, the angels in heaven, Jesus says the angels in heaven rejoice over one single sinner being saved. How much more the one who saves them? If angels rejoice over one sinner being saved, how much more does the one who saves them rejoice when they're saved? Seeing and believing these kinds of things about our Savior is what it means to build ourselves up in our most holy faith and to keep ourselves in the love of God. It means that you keep your focus on these awesome realities of God's love for you in Christ and you keep clinging to them. You keep preaching these truths to yourself. You keep casting yourself in faith upon them. You bank all that you are for life and eternity on the fact that Jesus loves me and He gave Himself up for me. Love that song. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love. Leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. What leads us onward? What leads us forward? What brings us to our glorious rest above? It's the deep, deep love of Jesus. Because of his deep love for us, he's chosen to have us. Isn't that that remarkable? Jesus has chosen to have you. You wouldn't choose to have me if you knew everything about me. If you knew my whole life, all my past, and what Christ has saved me from, you would not choose to have me. But Jesus chose to have me. It's the same with you. You're just as ugly as I was. You were. Spiritually, you're just as ugly as I was. And Jesus chose to have you. That's the gospel. And that's, that's the love of Jesus for you and me. And it's, it's by focusing on these truths that we will have the strength and the encouragement that we need to be led onward. To, to be led homeward and to, and to be prepared to enter into that glorious rest that is above. Oh, beloved, this is, this is where all of our power to live The life Jesus calls us to live comes from. It comes from believing in his love for us and his willingness to have us and the fact that those whom he receives, he will never cast out, he will never forsake them. Ever, ever forsake them. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that the Jesus who received me yesterday 
is the same Jesus receiving me today, no matter how I feel, and it's the same Jesus who's going to receive me in the future. I, please, don't doubt this. Don't doubt this. Don't doubt the compassion and the grace and the love of Jesus our Savior. Just come to Him and receive it. Believer, unbeliever in this room, there's only one thing you're called to do right now, and that is to come to Jesus and receive Him. You come to Him. You come. You come by faith. You call upon His name. You plead for Him to save you. Jesus says, I'll save you. I'll save you. Come to Him, trusting in who He has revealed Himself to be and take Him at His word. Because it is His joy and His pleasure and it is what satisfies Him more than anything else in the world, He is pleased to save us for the glory of His Father. So may the Lord give us grace to know this truth more fully and to rest ourselves in it. Father, we do pray for that. And, um, Lord, how weak and pathetic our faith can be, but Lord, you are strong and you are mighty. But when we're doubting and when we're fearful, Lord, you remain steadfast. You are immovable. You are the captain of our salvation. You are the leader. You are our rock and our refuge and the one in whom we hide. Lord, please help us see your love. Help us know your grace. Help us believe. We ask this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Hear the benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 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 May you go in the peace of Christ's name.